All right. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres, and I'm your host. And our special guest is William Henry. William is an advocate and volunteer, a military veteran, a researcher, <clears throat> excuse me, communications professional, and a leader in protecting and regaining liberty in the state of Indiana. He is a veteran of the U.S. Army and the Indiana Army National Guard from 2005 to 2015. He worked at the Indiana National Guard Joint Force Headquarters Public Affairs Office for most of those years until full time. Henry served on active duty in many stateside emergencies in floods, winter storms, and other national emergencies. He earned the Bronze Star Medal for his meritorious service for his overall journalism work during combat operations in Afghanistan in 2010. After returning from his second deployment, he began to work as a communications director for the American Legion, Department of Indiana. So from Goshen, Indiana, William, how you doing? Hey, Miguel. Thanks so much for having me on. And this is uh, this is this is great. Thanks. You know, we were we were, you know, always talk with all the guests before we get started. And uh, <clears throat> there's some stuff that I just learned about you that I did not know um, because it's just, you know, not just not on those profiles. And uh, it's a very interesting. And uh, to get listeners an idea of how you came to uh, found and launch the William Henry Advocacy and Liberty Offense, which are the two things that you're doing right now, I thought we'd pick up right where that second deployment ended and you took over at, at the Communications for Veterans, or I'm sorry, uh, Legion, American Legion. Yeah, and um, I had the great opportunity to work with the uh, Indiana American Legion. Um, they offered me a position as communications director, so I, I went in and started working with uh, veterans and their families. And um, the organization serves veterans and their families across the United States. They're a not-for-profit organization, and um, they really strive to fight for veterans' rights, and they advocate too. And that's really, you know, I, I started to get into advocacy when I when I started working for them and, and started to learn about um, um, how we advocate here in the state from the local level up to the federal level and um, started to work into the administration after the communications portion. And I became the assistant adjutant, which is the assistant um, chief executive uh, administrator. And then I was offered, um, after that, um, successfully uh, reforming the big four organizations and working on a lot of advocacy issues at the state level. And, of course, the organization itself got offered the position as adjutant, which is the chief uh, administrative officer of the organization in the state. So I served for about a year, a uh, little over a year, as a chief administrative officer of the American Legion Department of Indiana. And we got a lot of bills passed in that time. I worked with a lot of veterans organizations and, you know, the state uh, offices itself, too. And and really, during that time, um, veterans organizations really binded together and, and we really worked uh, with the state legislators and worked that process and, and successfully moved a lot of programs across the board and got a lot of help for veterans at that time, especially they were struggling with opioid and benzo uh, diazepine um, over medication from the VA and those type of things. And, and that's kind of where cannabis came in. Well, for listeners, are, this was, this is at 2010, right? You said around 2010. This was about uh, 2014 as 2014 uh, communications director. And then eventually worked my way up to the administrative uh, chief administrator position 
um, by 2018. So 2018, in that about five-year period of time, I was the chief administrative officer. And um, yeah, it took me about five years to get there. And at that time, you know, at the state level, we're really moving stuff too. And, and we're working with a lot of legislators and we're working with a lot of individuals to get this stuff done across the board. And and cannabis was really relevant during that time as well. So cannabis was a huge issue. And a, and a good friend of mine, Jeff Staker, good advocate, started Hoosier Veterans for Medical Cannabis. <clears throat> and he came into our offices and he's pitching um, you know, why veterans need to stay away from opioids, why veterans need to stay away from benzodiazepines. And, and my ears perked up, too, because I was being prescribed those type of medications, too. And I didn't want to consume those medications anymore as well because addiction and, and, and even taking, trying to take your prescribed medication of opioids and things like that, you have a tendency to overuse. You have a tendency to, to end your prescription early and ask for more and, or turn to someone else and, and try to seek it those other ways. And a lot of people, you know, fell a victim and succumbed to those type of addictive type of behaviors that came with those type of medications. And, and a lot of veterans were turning to the streets. They were looking for, you know, harder opioids and, you know, heroin and, and fentanyl and these things um, were killing a lot of veterans because of these addictive type of things. And cannabis came on the scene as some, you know, as an alternative to this so that we can save our veterans lives. We don't have to have these people part of those 22, you know, accidentally or intentionally killing themselves on these medications to help them, um, you know, get out of that addictive type of mode. So cannabis was was a big portion of, of what we were working on, too. You know, there was hyperbaric oxygen therapy and, you know, there were other programs that we wanted to help veterans with, too, that were going on. But cannabis uh, was a really big cannabis access was a really big issue. Uh, during that time as well. So, you know, I think sometimes 2014, the nation's coming out of two, the war that began in 9-11, right? And um, that that war doesn't seem to have ever stopped, really. You know, they can say the war stopped, but that was when, because I was I, I went to the service in 2000, right? And in 2001, it, it 9-11 happened and that's when all the things that you just described that's when i think it came to the national attention more pronounced right it came it is like hey this is a problem because all those vets the men and women being cycled in and out of war theaters at a very fast clip i mean they're going in and out and then when they return back to the states they're, they're, it's not like a nine months on three months off or you know it's not like that i've talked with army veterans guys that were in at the 14 year mark, ready to get out and like, say, I'm getting out next year, because if I, that means five years from a lifetime pension, right? That's how close he was 75, almost 75% of the way there. It was just, the pace was just grueling. So then when you do that, and then you not, you want to meet you, the editorial when people, when people, when people do that, and then they prescribe them all these pills and everything. That's when I really started that coming to the to the national attention. So I just want to bring that up because I think sometimes we forget that 9-11 happened and there was a long and drawn out and very controversial war. A lot of people just, you know, everybody kind of got on that, yep, hit them back kind of bandwagon. And that's, it was almost like, you know, in real life, it was almost played like a, like a pro wrestling match. 
is like, yep, we won. No, you didn't win. There's all this other ancillary. It's not even ancillary. It's people. You know? Yeah, it costs so much more than what people realize at the time because of the long-term effects. And, you know, even, even those that we don't lose there immediately on the ground, you know, there's always, you look, look, look at the burn pit victims now. Look at the Agent Orange victims from Vietnam. You know, these people um, needed treatment and, um, you know, they had to go through all of this stuff, you know, with their military career. It's just absolutely horrifying what some of these people had to endure during their military time and some of the things that they were expected to just kind of, you know, that they were literally told to pull up your bootstraps on it. It's interesting, man. And interesting. So <clears throat> pretty cool that you went that path because not a lot of people go that path. You know, it's it's a lot of, not a lot of people like say, yeah, I'm going to go this path to help people. And And, you know, like in any organization, there's going to be some people that 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 don't represent the the image well. So working with veterans can also be very challenging too, right? Cuz you know, pain, aging, suffering, finances, health, all that stuff. Working with working with with people that are having those kinds of challenges. Healthcare too as well. You know, it's like it takes a special kind of person to say, "Yeah, I can work with a lot of people that are going through a lot of trauma." And other things as well that I may not even be aware of. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were open to the idea of cannabis being available and accessible, especially the older folks in the American Legion that we were dealing with. You know, they were of that Vietnam era, most of them, you know, or earlier even, um, who really understood that you know a lot of those guys they they used cannabis throughout all these years too like they never stopped using cannabis but they've had to hide it and they had to live a certain way and then they didn't really understand how it worked either like they didn't understand the science and, and the knowledge and the education and the facts about it so during you know you're going through this whole educational process too at the same time not only learning yourself but also teaching these folks a whole other way that and showing, you know, that we haven't been told the correct thing when it comes to cannabis, when it comes to this type of stuff. We haven't been, we've been led kind of astray and, and down a line that's really not correct on when the science and the facts about uh, what cannabis is and what it actually does. So the more I started to advocate down that route, the more I started to research and educate myself and then try to educate others as I was going. And it's a whole process to undoctrinate or you know, <laughs> these, these individuals because the way that way that our society has kind of taught what people you know and clumped all these drugs together in one big lump and said that they're all kind of the same thing and and made you know when we didn't really take a look at these individual things before we made them illegal or understood them fully or maybe the people who made them illegal did understand a little better than we did to keep us from them so they can sell us the cure for this, some of these things too. And when it came down to it and I started to do more research and saw the science and the nutrition and the facts about cannabis and then the, the formed um, societal smoking, the ideal, like they want people's mind to be on smoking and illicit use and those type of things, not on nutrition, not on, you know, uh, supplemental, not on 
health. They don't want people to look at it as it would be um, a healthy, nutritional, raw substance to consume. They wanted people to look at these people acting funny and crazy, and they're smoking this stuff. And stereotypes. Stereotypes. And, Almost caricatures. Yes. And, and that's kind of where we went over those 87 years since the Marijuana Tax Act, you know, almost 87 years since the Marijuana Tax Act has taken hold, is we have trained everyone out of the actual, because before that, people were actually consuming it in their foods. People were consuming it as a supplement to their diet. It wasn't so much of the smoking and illicit use. Yes, that happened. And yes, that went on. But a lot of people added it to their diets. They used the hemp seed for cakes. The American uh, food producers were using uh, these substances in our foods. And we were getting cannabinoids from cannabis plants through our diet, regular diet of regular foods. And when they put in the Marijuana Tax Act, that stopped that type of production and, and food additive of those hemp products in our actual food. So, and the Department of Interior at the same time eradicated hemp throughout the United States. So what that did is it took the secondary uh, cannabinoid intake through grazing cattle and deer and these other type of things that would come across land race hemp. Um, they did not get that anymore through the Department of Interiors and things like that. So there are certain things that happen and then those inflammatory diseases after that started to climb after 1937 and, and the, I mean, the charts and, and the statistics and, and just everything really shows that, you know, hemp being included in our diet um, and, and the recent studies too, that I have went through shows, you know, the positive effects of that through oral consumption and through eating hemp. We're going to get to that, but there's something we got, we got to, because that was, Jason Straw, the uh, retired U.S. Air Force critical care trauma uh, nurse team lead, he's the one who introduced me to you, and uh, and that and he uh, we talked a little bit beforehand. And uh, 2018, we're up to 2018, right? So we're kind of we're kind of closing in on we're learning all of those science facts and pushing all of that forward, and then trying to reteach our legislators and some of these other individuals about what was happening it was, was very challenging during that time and you know working with veterans affairs and, and a lot of different issues that i was dealing with too i was confronted with evidence of possible misuse of state and federal funds at the indiana department of veterans affairs during that time and um, i wanted an investigation an internal affairs investigation on what was happening um, just based off this evidence and um, subsequently I was asked to resign the same day that I was going to turn in this information um, with threats of other things that had to do with cannabis you know and had to do with my advocacy and those routes and, and some of that stuff and they were threatening so after that the people who leaked the information to me found out and they leaked hundreds of more documents to me that showed federal uh, violations of, of fundage uh, misuse and gross misuse and, and fraud waste abuse that was happening state to you know federal funds that were happening and I was able to work with investigative reporters over a six-month period of time and lay out all of those violations that were happening 
and help them really show the public what was actually happening and, and why that happened. And, you know, that was a little bit of vindication for me to be able to work with those reporters and to be able to show the public exactly what was happening. But it also didn't bring my career back and it didn't, you know, help me uh, personally blowing the whistle like that either. Um, but being able to coordinate in that fashion and knowing, in, you know, I was doing the right thing and continuing on that pathway and not letting anything uh, block that really, uh, you know, just as shown at the end of that, that, you know, it was the right thing to do. And we prevailed in the end as telling the public and, and the people what was actually happening. That's not easy stuff either. That's pretty intense. No. And, and these people, you know, they just weren't people that were here and there. These were my colleagues and these were people that, you know, I deployed with. I love these people. And to have to, um, to reveal this stuff about what's going on too is, is is devastating in itself. But you know, it's one of it's one of those things where you, when you choose to do the right thing, um, it hurts, but it's still the right thing to do. It's uh, you know, I got I got three young boys, and I'm trying to help them understand the definition of bravery and courage, and oftentimes it's it's uh expressed in physical expressions right you know it's it's like this is what bravery is and that's pretty uh that's a pretty amazing thing because that's not an easy situation to be in and i think a lot of i don't know how many people but i i, I did a career in the military too I'm, I'm i didn't have anything like that but i know i know some people who have been in involved with other things and it's just kind of like wow it's uh yeah i think i think it, it gets lonely right yeah, and you know, it, it it can be very lonely standing by yourself saying the right thing, and you know, but in the end, you understand that it was the right thing to do, and I think everyone sees that it was the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, it's very tough to be that individual, you know, even if you're standing alone, even if your voice wavers, you know you should stand up and say something you should be that individual you should be that light you know in that darkness and be able to um, make those things right with everyone did you uh so where'd you go from there after that i know you you uh you launched william henry advocacy and and liberty offense um but that was a little bit later on so go ahead and take us there man then we'll get when we'll catch up to the then we'll then we'll catch up to the uh cannabis as food um after that i really started to get involved with indiana normal organization the national organization to reform marijuana laws um, started working communications with them as well and then i became the chairman um, a couple years later and uh, chaired the organization and helped you know do my best to reorg there and get comms going there and to get state level stuff continued going and get you know making sure that we're getting into those offices making sure that we're able to advocate properly and respectfully with those legislators and those policymakers, you know those those executive branch folks too especially um that we need to be working with and um those type of things and bringing that experience with me too helped out a lot and to help develop that a little further and that organization um you know I work with them for a few years and, and really after that now, um, I partnered with them with the Liberty Offense organization. 
And Liberty Offense Organization is a 501c4. And we started that organization to kind of be a, um, I don't know, like a, to take social effect, if you will, to be able to to get involved in the political things and to be a voice and to uh, endorse candidates if we feel that their you know uh, position is strong enough or to be able to work with other organizations. It's, it, it's a nonpartisan organization. So we work with all types as long as it's liberty and individual freedom focused that we want you know the constitution and we want the liberties for the individual to be able to choose for themselves and to take those um, and to be able to take responsibility themselves in those own choices too so liberty offense was really an organization to to help other organizations organize and and to take public action um, to work with the all branches of the government and the fourth estate, the media, um, to be able to affect change in local communities. So, like, for example, last year um, in October, we held a, um, a voter integrity rally over in South Bend, a nearby uh, county here in Indiana, in the northern part of the state. And it really what it, it it drew people from the libertarian party it drew people from the democratic party and the republican party too they all came to, everyone wants voter integrity and um we were really able to to bring in those groups and in doing that and inviting those people too created those those relationships with those individuals so like the county clerk was was elected and and their folks were there that day so they got a hold of us and and that 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 basically just extends those conversations about political issues or maybe voter issues or those type of things that are going on that we can affect change even at the local level or all the way up to the federal level if we you know if we choose to working with you know, whatever branch or or individuals or media that we can work with on on issues right on man so that is a. Uh... Again, that's not easy work. <laughs> that's not easy work at all. That is not easy work when you're doing it official. When you know you when you're when you're when you're saying, "Yep, we're doing this officially." Yeah, that's not easy work. That that again, that's that's a step that a lot of people talk about and and you know either ad not advocate but celebrate or complain about. But to step into it is another story. And that led into. Um working um just using all of those skills and everything for the advocacy being trying you know trying my hand at a, as an independent advocate to do, see what i can do as an individual to to help uh, organizations or other individuals achieve um, some sort of advocacy or some sort of route that they can make a change or you know we can and the main thing is we want to empower people to to make a change we can't do it at your local level, but we can help you do it at your local level. And those individuals at the local level should be the people up front, and they should be the ones who are, are really voicing their opinions and, and making those changes. And that's what we want to try to instill is, is trying to give those people the power to make the change themselves too. Right on, man. Right on. So now that was Liberty Offense, right? And so what about uh, William... Henry Advocacy. You want to go over that one next? Yeah. And this was in the Food First 
I've been saying for years now in the, in 2020, I ran for Lieutenant governor of Indiana. I saw that. Yeah, I did see that. I saw that on your profile. Yeah. Uh, on the libertarian ticket. Um, I ran alongside Donald rainwater and we received 11.4% of the statewide vote. So during 2020, during the mandates, we were anti-mandate. We were anti, um, you know, executive order and, and vaccine and, and all of these type of things. And that really set us apart during that time, too, as a third party. We had never got that kind of turnout at the polls to where we were receiving double digits um, because of these issues and being able to and cannabis was a big part of that platform too. Um, and during that time is when I kind of really coined the phrase cannabis is food first. And during the Lieutenant governor campaign um, and during the Lieutenant governor debate um, for the state against the, the current Lieutenant governor, uh, Suzanne Crouch and um, the democratic candidate, Linda Lawson, that's where I had really kind of coined that phrase. Cannabis is food first. And, because the industrial aspect and the medicinal and these other th aspects of it are, are secondary. Everything else, and especially smoking, smoking cannabis needs to be, like the idea of that needs to be secondary to the food because cannabis, and what I've found out during you know all of my research is all of the, the plant material on cannabis is edible and it's nutritional for your body. And that's why the deer and the rabbit and, and the cows and those folk and the, those uh, animals who are um, have access to this plant out in these fields or out in these areas will consume it because it contains calories, because it contains essential fatty acids and oils. And that's why we are attracted to it, too. It, but it's aroma and the terpenes and the flavonoids and these type of things that are in the plant material is because these things are actually good for us to consume. And these things are very nutritious for us to consume. And what they have found is this is a neuroprotectant. It's a cardioprotectant. It helps your body when you consume it in an oral and nutritional fashion. It takes a medicinal role, if you will. It helps your body uh, reach homeostasis. These, these acids and these oils that you're consuming are actually providing your cells with the immediate energy that they need to consume these phyto or plant cannabinoids because all of us have an endocannabinoid system and every vertebrae has an endocannabinoid system so all of these animals and everything with a backbone has an endocannabinoid system so they can benefit from a cannabinoid treatment type of, of therapy or a um, um, nutrition um, change so these these molecules inside of the plant material are actually very nutritious for us to consume and and that's where we want uh, with, with where i've kind of turned with the advocacy group and started working with the usda and started contacting the usda and saying hey you sent me because it's been five years since the federal hemp program has taken place and we still don't have any federal information on the actual nutritional um, nutritional content of raw hemp itself. Hmm. Say it again. They have not given us the nutritional uh, profile of raw hemp. From the FDA, right? From the USDA. U USDA, sorry, USDA. 
I just that is kind of funny because you figured they'd already have that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they and the only thing that they did have was uh, hauled hemp seed information, nutritional information from hauled hemp seed, and this was likely imported hemp seed, which means it's radiated or it's okay. microwaved before they actually do anything else to it. So it's not even so they actually changing the molecules in it and making sterilizing the seeds before they give this nutritional look at it which was in 2015 and th that's all that they have on the website and i've been in contact with those with the website director and a number of other directors in the usda in that department to try to get them to get cannabis on their list of laboratory studied uh, nutritional outlook so they're they're working with me right now to try to under Oh, froze up for a second there. All right, sorry about that. We had a little freeze on the on the connection there. But uh, you listeners know, but when the freeze happens, you know, we got to go back and figure out where we left off. So it was right around that spot where where um, William said he was working with uh, groups in the government to try to put hemp seeds into the category of laboratory tested materials. And go ahead and go from there. Yes, and the the USDA they have a um, uh, a food department that actually tests the the food. And what I'm trying to do is work with them to try to get their standard operational procedures um, laid out so we can understand how we can test raw hemp for its nutritional content. So this is this is the nutrients in the vitamins, in the edible fiber, and uh, carbohydrates, and those type of things in the actual plant material itself. Because all of hemp, all of cannabis, you can eat. It's it's completely safe to consume it, eating it. And it doesn't get you high or that, you know, that, that uh, therapeutic feeling that you get it from it because it's not decarboxylized if you eat it raw. And these are the THC um, A or acids that you're consuming in the acid form. Um, that's the most nutritional to you to be able to consume inside your body um, orally. So I got a quick question. When I heard you say um, trying to get um, those seeds put into a category of laboratory tested content, would that prevent them from being radiated and going through those types of uh, I don't want to say treatments, but those types of uh, uh, harmful processes to the seed itself. Yeah, and to sterilize it. But it's not just the seed. It's also the flowers. It's all of the, 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 fl the flowered and the leafy plant material on the plant that we want a nutritional profile on. So we want we want plants with seeds. We want plants without seeds so we can give a comparison to see what the seed difference is in the nutritional profile and what the actual nutrition is in the actual plant material. And then we want it, we want it uh, raw and we want it dried. So we want four different uh, categoried uh, tests with and without seeds. So we want raw with and without seeds and we want dry with and without seeds. So when you test that plant material, just like you would any other food, like an apple, you would throw it in a blender and they would make a slurry up and pour it and they would test that slurry uh, to see what the nutritional content or compounds are inside of that material so we wanted them to do the same thing that they do with the apple 
that they do with raw cannabis because it's all completely edible. And um, this will give us a, an actual baseline nutritional profile on raw cannabis itself that's federally legal. That's that is a big step for a, that will benefit a lot of people. You know what I mean? That that's that's some stuff that is significant, and some people, you know, it reminds me of uh, uh, a Canadian out of oh, he's he's a Brit who's now a Canadian out of uh, <clears throat> out of British Columbia, Owen Smith, and and how he took some action with the Canadian government, and he's like, yeah, I, this happened, and you know what? Millions of people will probably never know this happened, but they're going to benefit from it, and. Go ahead. And and that gives it a protection as a food, too. Like in, in its raw federal hemp form, it gives it that protection as a food. So when you classify it as a food, the FDA can't say it's not a food. The FDA can't say that portions of it are not a food because the USDA is making a ruling on it being an actual food. And it's classifying it as a food. And when they do that, that uh, that adds um, the protection to that the federal hemp plant as well in those capacities. And plus, what's one thing that we don't tax in a lot of states? Food. We don't right. Food. So you, right. if cannabis is a food first, you can't tax it either. So in, in, in that capacity, I mean, if it's being used and, and consumed as a food, regardless of whether it is or not, if a, if a consumer says that they're consuming it in that fashion, they shouldn't have to be entitled to pay a tax on it, uh, if that's the case, if it's cla classified as a food. But the FDA is a real big hurdle in all of this because the FDA wants to classify this as not a food. But the FDA, that's where I started in all of this, and I called them, and I wanted them to be part of this too, and when I learned more about the FDA and, and the, the more they wanted to try to stop what I was doing, too, and the more that, you know, that they were trying to throw roadblocks out and saying, well, we can't do this. We can't use our labs for that. And, and the, what I learned about the nutritional labeling um, information and that type of stuff, too, was absolutely astounding um, uh, about how they really don't even test what's in that nutritional label that is required to be put on our food packages. So, the I, so, so say it again, say it again. <laughs> the nutritional facts on our food label, um, the FDA does not research the exact materials that they say are on that label in the food product unless someone is injured or someone calls, uh, raises the flag to, to have that investigated or has an independent uh, laboratory investigate that themselves. The FDA doesn't even verify what they say is in our food to begin with in any type of laboratory testing at all. They just allow these independent labs to create these nutritional food content labels to be put on the packages, and the FDA is done with that food product as long as that portion is, is logged in their categories reactionary it's a reactionary thing it's it it's reactionary on that but they want to be proactive and try to keep us from accessing cbd right yep their cannabinoids for our own health and this is where that really shows what their function is too that they're not concerned with our actual food and, and nutritional content they're concerned with limiting us to certain food and nutritional content and that's what's happening within the FDA right now regarding cannabis and, and the CBD and them trying to prevent that 
being infused or included in other foods is because they're starting to understand that this is a nutritional compound. And this is actually, I mean, people don't fully understand the human endocannabinoid system yet. So they can't even fathom um, what this could do to uh, so many diseases if people were including more hemp-based cannabinoid intake in their diets. You know, do you want to, do you want to, I'm, I'm always interested in this, this, this topic. If, if you want to go further down it, I'm willing to go down that road with you some more. It's up to you. What do you think, William? Absolutely. All right. So, uh, where are things at with you now? Like, like, did we get to that point or we're not, we're not to the point where you are with it now, right? No. And, and. Uh, working with the FDA down those routes, learning about what they were going to try to prevent me from doing. And I really needed to find an authority in our agriculture and food. And the USDA absolutely is that authority in the agriculture and food. And they don't agree with the FDA. They don't agree with the FDA and what they're doing, especially those people working in the hemp programs inside of the USDA. The FDA, um, that agency is is kind of overstepping its authority uh, into this other agency trying to tell people what is and isn't food um, when they're the agricultural authority um, over everything. You know, it's agriculture first, and then it, it's all of these other things. It's industry and these other things that come from agriculture. Um, agriculture is the baseline and they're the ones who should be able to determine these food and and they do um, and and that's why they have the laboratories um, that research these food items and that's who I've been talking to um, about getting this federal hemp uh, analyzed were there how did you come how did you personally come to understand marijuana to be beneficial to your health personally consuming it and that's where i found out mostly um it wasn't anything like what they were trying to educate me on what they were saying it was and in consuming it and researching it too at the same time and reading about all of these um overseas documents that the fda and and these other folks were not paying attention to. We were spending money overseas uh, to Dr. Ralph Machulam to research CBD and these other uh, areas, uh, you know, and and in the Jewish routes overseas and in their laboratories, they were, we were paying our tax dollars for them to do research on this stuff. And we weren't able to use it here in the United States. Um, And, you know, to be able to, to learn more about all of this, this research and the science and, and the facts about cannabis and to see how much we really didn't know and we were trying to tell people about it, um, especially in these D.A.R.E. programs and things like this. And, and the focus is smoking. They want the focus on smoking. And that's not the main route or the, the main consumption um, route that a lot of people use or prefer especially if someone has a lung disease or something like that. And, and smoking something, you know, combustible is not necessarily good for you at all. And, and if you can consume it in another fashion and be able to have a better uptake of those cannabinoids and that type of stuff uh, is better for the individual. And researching all of those type of things and understanding what it actually does in our body and, and 
and using it myself to get off of opioids, to get off of alcohol, and, you know, not taking benzos or, or any type of prescription drugs at all. And cannabis has replaced, you know, all of those inflammation. You know, I have joint um, issues from the military. My knees and my ankles are, very, are terrible. Um, and the anti-inflammatory uh, benefits that I get from consuming cannabis orally, just eating cannabis products, um, is far beyond what opioids and any prescription anti-inflammatory could have ever done for me. And to understand how that actually works at the individual cellular level too, um, I understand that completely now that what's actually happening inside of my body and how it's working. And that's what really drives me to keep, um, and seeing how it's working for other people, you know, and seeing cancer patients come, you know, being able to eat, seeing Alzheimer patients having more days of clarity, uh, Parkinson's patients that don't have so much shakes, uh, you know, kids and adults both having cannabis oil rubbed on their gums, stopping seizures in their tracks. These are things that you can't fake. And these are things that, that you know, people don't really realize what's happening inside uh, uh, nutritionally and, and cellularly in our bodies where we're benefiting from this plant. Oh man, it'll be good when it's out. I'm, you know, I'll schedule three, the schedule one, schedule three thing. What do you, what are your thoughts on that and how it shakes out with what you're seeing? Well, that adds, that adds more restrictions to us as consumers because it limits, it still limits us to um, getting that prescribed and getting the, and it's more of getting the, the drug companies, the access before, you know, we, even have access to the plant material ourselves so a lot of us we want access to the plant we want freedom we want the ability to access it should it be you know rescheduled it's better than not moving it from the top schedule but i think a lot of cannabis uh, advocates and people want to see it descheduled completely off of there because cannabis has never caused death and that's the biggest thing is you can you can't put something on the top most dangerous list that does not kill and <laughs> as much it's, as you want the, incon the inconsistency of that reasoning is so you know it's so obvious it's 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 crazy and and then the stigma that comes with it is is just as insane and well yeah it's just absolutely it's it's abhorrent what what they're doing and in, in not giving access, individual access. I mean, cannabis should be our first route access. It shouldn't be last resort. It shouldn't be. That's, <laughs> that. yeah, it's been turned upside down. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, a lot of people on their deathbed, they're like, oh, I'll try that cannabis now. It's like, you know, it, it doesn't, <clears throat> it, it, it might help you ease your pain, but if you were consuming it, you know, regularly for a longer period of time, a lot of these medical issues are cannabinoid deficiencies and adding cannabinoids to your diet um, doesn't matter how you get them adding those cannabinoids you know to your diet though will help you greatly um, regain that homeostasis in your body and these phyto or plant cannabinoids replace what our endo or uh, human cannabinoids don't make so our, our endocannabinoid system you know our pancreas may be lacking an endocannabinoid that a phyto or plant cannabinoid replaces and that eases up a diabetic's uh, need for insulin 
because their body is producing insulin better because they're receiving that phytocannabinoid in place of an endocannabinoid that doesn't work properly within their body. And that's the science of how some of these things are panning out. It is good stuff. <clears throat> it is good stuff. I love it too. I love it too. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> what do you want to share with listeners about what you have plans for the future? How far, however far from the future is up to you. You know what I mean? Because I, I, you obviously are a planner. You, you can't do this stuff without planning, right? You, you got, so what would you like to share with what you got going on next? Well, really, you know, I want to continue on the food first route working with, I, you know, I've started to get the ear of these individuals at the USDA. They're the executives in these roles, making the policies and, and helping drive that. And I want, you know, getting their buy-in is what I'm trying to do with this, with the education and the research and, and, and being pragmatic and, and taking steps towards these approaches to get these things uh, noticed and to get them on the list, you know, Food Data Central, the USDA uh, uh, main listing is who I'm working with, um, and I'm trying to get them to get cannabis on their list and within the next year. And, you know, their director just emailed me a couple of days ago with some information about cannabis that he was sent from someone else internally from uh, the federal government. So him forwarding me that, say, hey, take a look at this cannabis stuff I was just sent. Like they're starting to think about these things. They're starting to realize that this stuff is is a very positive um, substance. And I want to continue on that route to to help develop those relationships more and to get us more access um, to the to the science and the data um, that we should be available that should be available to us, especially something that's a, a federally legal uh, hemp product um, in, in all 50 states and all the territories. We, we're supposed to be accessible to have these hemp programs and we should have data on that. Right on, right on. All right, man. Well, we're going to shift to the second part of the podcast. And this is where, you know, I'm going to start off with this question. Were you raised in Indiana? Were you born and raised in Indiana? Yes. All yeah. right. I was born and raised here and I've lived here pretty much my whole life, except for the, you know, the deployments and those type of things. All right. So, were you raised with a religion or a worldview, philosophy, or the absence of a religious faith? For the most part, you know, we were involved with a lot of churches and those type of things, Sunday schools, and I grew up within the churches. And, um, you know, I got a lot of, of uh, you know, Christian experience during my youth, especially attending these youth programs and things like that. So, um I, I wasn't necessarily uh, raised on a particular religion, but, you know, going to these different churches and being involved uh, socially with a lot of these groups, too, um, I think that kind of, you know, uh, gave me a, a broader sense of, of, you know, the religion aspects and really just kind of gave me a, an education on, on what was available to me, too. So when it comes, go ahead, go ahead. So it wasn't necessarily like anything that we had practiced at home every day, but it was, uh, but it was um, having access and the availability um, to the church and, and folks from there too. Yeah, I'm following you. I'm following you. Would you call it? Would you? Would you call it any of it as spirituality? Was it? Would you get any like of a spirituality context out of it, or, or? 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and especially the morality um, uh, aspects of religion, too, you know, trying to guide people in the right way, trying to make sure that we're treating each other respectfully, that we're not, you know, doing things that we shouldn't be doing in, in those aspects as well. So, yeah. And how did it impact the way you view the world now? I think that it, you know, it gave me a broader sense, a broader look uh, at the world around me. It it made me look inside myself, too, in a lot of ways, um, even though I didn't, you know, practice, you know, the religion in those capacities steadily, it still gave me a, a spiritual sense, you know what I mean? So it gave me, um, and equating those things more to nature and more to the beauty of those things around me and the connectivity uh, of life itself too. Um, I think that, you know, in those spiritual senses, it gave me a broader aspect or a broader ability to kind of um, respect those type of things too. Right on. Right on. Um, oh, Indiana is a very conservative state. So that's, that's, that's one thing that makes this conversation even more interesting. You know what I mean? It's like, you're in Indiana, man. <laughs> it's, it's conservative. Well, they say they're conservative and the Republicans that not really conserving, uh, fiscally or constitutionally. right? Now. Ah, as, as, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. So you grew up with dare the dare program, right? Yeah, and and in that program, I think the Dare program probably promoted drugs more than deterred. People. I think it did too. I think it, I think it actually promoted it instead of yeah. I agree. And I don't think that it was really impactful. Some of the things you know, the the, the Dare officers would come to the school and they would talk about you know, and I don't think a lot of these were relatable. Uh, things for the kids to really and a lot of it became a joke and, and the way that they were presenting some of this stuff too was just kind of it wasn't with the times really and it wasn't really um, it wasn't correct and I think a lot of people saw through a lot of that stuff that was happening especially after the just say no era and all that stuff in the 80s and then kind of going into the 90s and the dare program and all that stuff you know it it really didn't give a realistic look at what these illicit substances were or given real education uh, uh, to these kids and seriousness about uh, some of these other substances too because when you're equating cannabis with something that's very deadly like heroin and then someone goes and uses cannabis and they're like it's not deadly like it didn't do anything but that equation is still the same in the mind of the person of the heroin because the schedule one like they're both schedule one so they're both just as deadly but when one doesn't show that and they're they're the inequality and inequity of those ratings um really put a lot of people at risk i believe in that process too because they um they found out for themselves and um they explored more than probably they would have been able to or or wish to had they not been exposed to some of those programs the way that they were laid out I didn't want to interrupt you. There's a question I had as you were talking. 
And I can't recall it right now, William, <laughs> but it was good, man. You got a lot of experiences and you and you got a, a lot to to still do, but to to share with people to listen. And it's it's fascinating. I'm very thankful for your time. <clears throat> um man, I wish I could recall that question, but it'll come back to me later. And when it does, I'll ask you. Let me okay. ask you, let me ask you this, man. So what are your thoughts on um what are your thoughts on uh universe and all life in it you think it's a result of a series of accidents or do you think there's an intelligent designer behind it and i think that's what we're all kind of searching for too and and i and i see nature and i see myself and i you know and i and i and i try to be observant and i try to think you know and i believe all things are connected and i think all things are you know um, there's a relevancy between each thing, um, whether it's animate or inanimate in this physical world that we live in. And, and I think that we're thrust forward in time. Um, also, we we can only move forward uh, in this world that we live in now. And our physical world and our etherical world are, um, are different. And I think that we've proven through science of superposition. I think that you can you can reasonably believe that two things can be in the same place or one thing can be in the same or two places at the same time is what superposition really means and and having that understanding and the double slit theory too i don't know if <laughs> you, know. you talk about the double blind double blind slit theory with the light and the yeah. way it moves well yeah. yeah when it's being observed and when it's not being not observed. being observed right yeah so in those things in science, I think that we have we have shown through quantum physics and some of these other things that um, there are great possibilities in our physical world that we don't completely understand now. And um, I think that there are higher powers at work um, that help, you know, um, structure this world in which we live and, and our perception of it in this direction that we're going. Right on, man. That's cool. You are definitely paying attention. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Let me ask you this next one, man. What do you think? What do you believe about a life after this life? Do you believe it exists? And if you do, do you believe there's some form of payment due upon death? And this question is because I think a lot of people live life thinking that if they do good, they get good. If they do bad, they get bad. And they end up, you know, in their hearts, measuring up what is going to happen to them based on that when they die, and having grown up as a in as in a Christian denomination and then since in the quasi conservative state of Indiana, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? And or actually, let's first start off with what you were taught, and then and then uh, transition into what your thoughts are now. say that question one more time you, you believe in there's a life after you believe in life after this life and if you do do you believe there's some form of payment that's due upon death i think that everyone um, wants to believe that this isn't it um, and i think that the work that we do here you know there's a saying that um, i plant you know people plant trees in which shade they won't enjoy or they won't be able to to enjoy, you know, we do those things um, for the future, too. And I think that 
all of us want to believe that, you know, um, that this life isn't everything that we have, that we, that there is something else beyond after this uh, life um, that exists. And whether we have to pay for that, for what we did or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think on each individual's conscience, you know, especially, you know, the moment they die or on their deathbed too, I'm, I'm sure a lot of individuals feel like maybe they didn't say the things that they should have said, or they didn't do the things that they should have said, or they even have regrets, um, mostly. And I, 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 I really don't know. Um, I really don't know. And I, th I want to believe that there's a life beyond this life. And I want to believe that the good things that I do in this life are going to help me uh, contribute to, to that as well. Um, but I can't be sure. I understand. I understand. <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a, I thought it when you're talking, I, this is, I remember this, my thought, I didn't want to interrupt you this time. I got to, I, I it held on this time, William, it held on this time. <laughs> As you were talking, I was thinking of, uh, of Blaise Pascal and uh, his book, The Mind on Fire. It's spelled P-E-N-S-E-S. -E and uh, it's pretty good. And he's talking about, Everybody goes into that. I think everybody goes into that place. What do I believe? What do I believe? Because if I'm going to believe it, then I'm going to live my life based on that. And um, it's a big deal. And, and, and in Pascal's book, he talks about chance, and uh, he talks about a lot of things. I'm, I can't go into all of them, man, but you might want to check it out. I'll just leave it at that. I'll put it like that. You might want to check it out. It's good. It's a really good book. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I'll check it out. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The, uh, you know, you know, there's something fat. There's something different about the way you answered that question that, that's got me a little, not puzzled, but it's just kind of like, wow, I almost want to pause this to think about it a little bit longer, <laughs> But I don't edit recordings. <laughs> so that's fascinating. So so when you say, you know, I really don't know, what kind of things, where, what kind of, you know, what where do you go to look for where you might find some answers? You know what I mean? Because well, that's where a lot of us do it. And I think a lot of us pull stuff from entertainment. I'm not saying that's where you pull it from, but a lot of us, and it includes me too. It includes me. We, we're influenced by what we see and hear. And when we hear things like whether whatever the whatever the religion is, whether it's a Judeo-Christian religion or Hinduism or Buddhism, we hear these concepts or Islam, we hear these things coming and they start to make sense to us in a certain way. And then we kind of go, okay, yeah, that was karma or or yeah, that was that was this or that was that. And karma is the one I hear a lot, you know, you just hear it a lot because you know it's 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 we're in America. We're in America where we can worship freely. And that's what's pretty cool. So what are your thoughts on that, man? Yeah, karma, the concept of, you know, what you put out is what you get, too. And, uh, and I think a lot of people can see that, too. You know, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, and you kind of get short with people and stuff, you know, that comes back to you, too. And, and people want to match those type of energies, too. So 
um, to, to be able to put good out into the world and to get good too. Um, you got to be very mindful of that. And that's some of the stuff that I've, I've really been trying to work on too, is, is, is called mindfulness and be aware in the moment and be, be present. And, and in nature lately, I've been able to, to get out over the last month or so because I just had a procedure, you know, I had polyps removed from my sinuses and a very, very gruesome type of deal that i had to go through but that sounds know, painful that actually doesn't sound that sounds like one that would hurt yeah yeah <laughs> and being able to recover from that and take those moments of solace and being able to reflect in those moments too and to be able to to take that moment and enjoy that moment and um being in nature and i see a lot a lot of those connectivities too um you know in the spiritual world to our physical world as i feel that um with my bond as i'm walking through nature and and all of these things are aware and all of these things uh, know what they're doing. And um, like the tree understands what its job is as a tree and it knows how to, to communicate that to the other trees and the animals simply can uh, squeak or squawk and have a very simplistic to us, a very simplistic type of uh, linguistic style, but we have to be very expressive to express ourselves and we're still trying to find ourselves almost in this world um, that everything else feels like maybe it belongs and we're trying to find that connectivity at least i'm trying to find that connectivity uh within nature and those things uh, naturistic around me in my physical world that i can gain that kind of etherical or spiritual type of feeling from too as well right on man right on that's cool you know what Unless there's something else you want to share with people, I think that's a perfect place to conclude, man, because that is, you know, that that summarizes what many people, men and women, children, have been observing and trying to make sense of. It's 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 unhidden, but it's almost like it's hidden right in front of us it's a strange world we live in but if there's anything else you'd like to share with listeners that <clears throat> you got the you got the time or i just want to thank you for your time today and allowing me to kind of go on in detail about all this stuff which is really so exciting for me to be able to talk about too and to be able to share that with everyone um i love you know being able to to date to, to be able to do that and to share some of my work and um, to let people know that there's people out here, you know, really working for for liberty in, in these issues. And if you want to get involved with Liberty Offense, our organization can be found at libertyoffense.org. Um, and if you want to check me out or the Food First uh, initiative or any kind of advocacy. Yes, community, yes. Let's go over that. Let's make sure people can find you. <clears throat> uh, WilliamHenry.us. You can go to that website and find out more about me and more about some of the initiatives and things that I'm working on. Um, but yeah, those two websites, libertyoffense.org and williamhenry.us and uh, stay connected and, and find us on social media too. Right on, right on. Thank you very much for your time, William. I enjoyed it. You got a great voice for the, you got a great voice for this stuff, man. And you got a nice setup there too. So it's kind of like, yeah, I, I hope, I hope more people invite you on to things because it'd be great to hear your story have a broader you. reach. Thanks so much, Miguel. Absolutely, man. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres, and I'm your host. And our special guest is William Henry. He's the founder of William Henry Advocacy and Liberty Offense. Check him out. You won't be disappointed. Love you all. <laughs>